Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Doing a we're doing a just the two of us episode. Back the back the old style. Um the way I like it. The date two of us. The yep. days of yore. Do doing a little bit more of a contemporaneous episode today. We're gonna start with uh, you know, we had the Mueller testimony today and um, you know, in the last like week we've had this sort of squabble with uh between Nancy Pelosi and the so-called squad. Um, the squad bull. Yeah. Squad bull. The fo- who? Let's see. Who is in? It's it's AOC. So we got AOC. Elon got, Omar. Uh, Elon Omar. Rashida Tlaib. We've got uh, right, and then Presley. Yeah. And Presley, I would say, is kind of the odd one out a little bit ideologically. She's more conservative than all the rest of them. But I would, I will say. I think she shares their tactical uh, uh, sort of view in general that like even, you know, she voted for the anti-BDS bill um, that that was Terrible. up today. Yeah, which sucks. That's that's awful. But she's and also so did Ro Khanna. Yeah, that's bullshit. But uh, they she doesn't she's not the, one of these cringing you know, like Jim Clyburn or, or, or Nancy Pelosi, just, you know, utterly terrified of, of Republicans and unwilling to exercise authority of any kind. Um, That's right. Because, and, and I will say that you can maybe move people to the left ideologically, but they tend to temperamentally either have the fire or not. Right. Like, and, and so it's, it's, I, I would rather at this point, have somebody with with guts and courage and, and you know hopefully association breeds assimilation and we can pull her to the left uh rather than just kind of your your tepid um you know what you tend to get both with the pelosi's of the world the schumers and everything but uh, at least we get one of the two things that's needed right courage action and proper ideological you know lefty heft yeah and this um you know, just as the background, I'm sure most people are aware, but just to sort of go through it, you know, AOC especially, you know, she's probably, I would say, the most famous member of the House, aside from the leadership, um, gets the most media coverage of any House member, I would say. And and she's been critical of the uh, the leadership on substantive grounds, basically saying that they're not, you know, they're not doing a a good job confronting Trump. You know, she supports opening an impeachment inquiry. Um, you know, she voted against the BDS thing. And the the, the big conflict was over their uh, Pelosi allowing a bill through to fund the child concentration camps and the rest of the immigrant concentration camps, um, you know, and, and the 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 moderates basically were were uh, uh, they they thought that you know wait if I remember this correctly Trump threatened to um, do a bunch of deportation raids with ICE unless they gave him more money for these the 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 child camps and the rest of the camps which they did with no strings attached then Trump went ahead and did the raids anyway. And that happened last weekend. And right. So so let's separate two different fights. There's the squad, which we just named, you know, AOC, Talib, um, Presley, and Omar against Trump about uh the child concentration camps and other related uh terrible things related to immigration. Um and other right, there's a whole lot of, of kind of back and forth with Trump and the squad. And then there's the failures, uh, failure of the Democratic leadership to support the squad in that fight. But more importantly, what Ryan, what you just explained to fail to step up to either impeach Trump because of any number of things, uh, Mueller report or whatnot, but also the failure to take any action or leadership with respect to actual policy issues with which they could actually, uh, negotiate, have leverage. I mean, we control the house. So th- this is, you know, just another indicator that the, the fight is all with these first year, um, lefties and, and then the Dem leadership is for the first time being called out. You know, usually everybody kind of, uh, falls in line. I think that's part of 
uh, the Democratic Party's standard operating procedure, right? Everyone just fall in line. And so I think there's more fight from Pelosi against the squad than there is against Trump. I think that's clear. Yeah. Right. So the question is, what is that about? Right. You're, you're fighting the most popular, right, and most famous representative in the House, this young, brilliant upstart AOC and other young first year women of color. You're fighting them. Right. When they're on the side of principle and yet you won't, you'll you'll be silent and just, you know, have a lot of words, but no action against Trump. So that's kind of where we're at with that. Yeah. And then, of course, um, Trump stepped into the dispute himself by saying that, um, you know, he, he could arrange to, to send them to send them back to the countries they came from. You know, apparently, and he's sure that Pelosi would like that. Yeah. He said in his tweet, I think. apparently referencing all four of them, despite the fact that Omar is the only one who actually comes from, who's actually born in another country, even though she's a citizen now. You know, she was a refugee from Somalia who came here when she was like seven or something. Um, right, but of course, you know, classic racist trope. There, yeah, the the this is the guy in you know Applebee's, some some sweating MAGA hog who is just, well, go back to Africa type of stuff, you know, and that's clearly what that was all about. Um, Only white people can be real Americans, even though black people have been here far longer on average than white people, including Trump himself. All four of his grandparents were were born in another country. Um, And this tracks, by the way, precisely the alt-left controversy, if you remember that, after Charlottesville, you had, you know, a bunch of centrist politicians um, casting aspersions on a so-called alt-left, which was just as bad as, you know, by implication that was like anybody who disagrees with this, the centrist, you know, Hillary Clinton view is uh, motivated by racism, you know, and is similar to the alt-right. Um, and then tr- you see, Ryan, the centrist position is to be against fascists and anti-fascists and to be for middling fascists, <laughs> like people that are kind of like half and half. Yeah, you're Switzerland, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, but yeah, so, so tr- and then Trump after the Charlottesville, you know, uh, terrorist attack and the, and the you know, the, the Nazis who were, ch- who were chanting, uh, Jews will not replace us. Trump made reference to, you know, there's, Great people on both sides. And what about the alt-left? Um, you know, both sides in fascism. And then that term got quietly dropped by a lot of people. Um, but that, yeah, so this is not the first time that the, that the centrist Democratic leadership has queued up an, a great attack by Trump and allowed him to, to s- sort of smear the entire caucus, you know, and, and exploit this internal well, division. Don't forget, don't forget, Ryan, that we just, you know, re-upped and unlocked our episode from back in April when we discussed Elon Omar and kind of patriotism and the attacks that she came under and the lack of not only the lack of support but the kind of uh, censorious statements by Pelosi and the leadership that condemned Elon Omar for for what was clearly not anti-semitic uh so also the setup for for Trump this time was Pelosi siding with Trump against Omar back then right yeah yeah, you know, they were going to they 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 drew up a yeah, measure to censor her and 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 uh, you know, it was just handing them a golden opportunity to be like, look, yeah, Democrats party of anti-Semitism, they admit it themselves, buying into this bullshit critique. Um and yeah, so this this I would say ties up ties into the the Mueller stuff because you know, Democrats kind of inexplicably wanted Mueller to testify. And as I wrote in an article today, you know, they got some good sound bites out of him. You know, he just flatly disputed Trump's characterization of the report. You know, he said, no, it does not exonerate him. Um, the only, you know, the, the, the emphasizing that the reason he did not consider an indictment for Trump was because of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion, which says you can't indict a sitting president, which is fucking bullshit, by the way. Um, Yep. And yet, you know, they're not going to do anything about this. You know, this is the the first the only real hearing they've had on this whole Russiagate thing or any of Trump's major scandals um, in terms of like 
you know, should he be removed from office type things? They've done some hearings on the the uh, concentration camps and whatnot. But the only the only hearing is to have this guy come to to testify before the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee to tell them the things that they already knew. And in fact, he made that clear right in the beginning of his statement. I'm not going to say anything that isn't already in the report that's been out for months, which is very damning, by the way. Yes. So, And this is the thing on the left that, that drives me a little crazy because a little truth is a dangerous thing. Like, I get that, that – and this is something that we're, I think, indicting this in this very episode – uh, a certain type of centrist slash liberal slash democratic uh, move is to think that politics doesn't involve action or actually doing anything, right? Like some some savior will save the day, and and just like uh, hashtag facts being revealed will will somehow oust Trump or or win, you know, uh, politically. And so there there is and and, and this this kind of uh, avoidance of uh, responsibility from Hillary Clinton and her terrible campaign and her terrible candidacy and her terrible record, again, going to, uh, oh, it's Russia's fault that Trump won instead of taking the actual responsibility that neoliberalism and the kind of acolytes uh, and representatives of neoliberalism like Clinton or Biden or Obama, um, the role that they play in basically giving rise to these kind of uh, – quasi-fascist, uh, ha- you know, scare-quote populist right-wingers, which are on the rise around the world and in our own political class, as we'll see. Um, so, yeah, I get how frustrating that is. But th- at the same time, that doesn't mean we can't reg- recognize Trump as the thug, racist, xenophobe that he is and that he's, you know, this report is so damning that, I mean, if law were some neutral thing that didn't involve politics, then yeah, once he was out of office, once he's out of office, it would make sense that he would be prosecuted and indicted. And and I'm sure that they would be able to put him away if, if that was how, how... But the Democrats didn't do anything when the Bush people tortured people, right? There was no comeuppance there. I mean, so, so it's this is the whole point. Politics requires uh, leadership and action to actually make those principles, use the law, use the institution to actually do the things that need to be done. Don't just wait for some kind of neutral savior to to do it for you, or the system will just do it for you. It's it's just uh, it's it's mendacious, naive, pernicious. Um, all rolled into one. Sometimes I think the status quo and the donor class uh, loves to take advantage of this, but then sometimes there's probably actually some Kool-Aid being drunk by by some of these Dems who don't realize what politics actually requires. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's that combination of things, you know, that that on the one hand, they are beholden to this sort of corporate interests that, you know, they don't want to see the sort, sort of populist confrontation where you're, you're you know, fighting Trump in his own terms and trying to beat him on the merits in terms of sort of stirring up the population. And then on the other hand, you know, it just is all these fossils, um, Pelosi and Schumer and, and all the rest of them who are just, they, they, they're just convinced that they can't, they can't win any of these sort of fights and that the only thing they can do is just sort of hang on by their fingernails and maybe, you know, stop things from getting worse, um, even though occasionally, you know, they're, they're passing bills to, that, that gives Trump exactly what he wants with no no conditions. That was an, another thing, by the way, that just passed was a extension of the debt ceiling. I don't think it's it's through the uh, the Senate yet, but um, <clears throat> they got a big, Terrible. big boost and big old fiscal stimulus. Big uh, 300 something, 320 billion in new spending. And they extended the debt limit up through about 2021, middle of 2021. So Trump gets no strings attached, a, a debt ceiling extension, and it and it could land like a grenade right in the middle of the first year of the next Democratic presidential administration. And they didn't even ask for, for something that would be objectively reasonable in return for uh, extending the debt ceiling, which would be getting rid of it entirely because it's an insane policy. And Republicans have all, you know, threatened to blow up the world economy to, to, uh, uh, using that before. And yet, nope, they just gave it to them. But they are who we thought they were and we let them off the hook.
this is that fight coming back again. Uh, AOC, you know, uh, tweeted that we, we got to start impeachment inquiries, you know, the, 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 it's, it's time to, you know, stand up and, 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 and start throwing some punches to see how strong you really are. In fact, um, Michael Brendan Doherty of the National Review, who is someone I do not uh, see eye to eye politically with, but he had a pretty good line on this in an article. Um, he says, uh, just talking about Pelosi and so on, um, just as spectators of the political game, it should be obvious by now that this is a signature mistake that all of Trump's opponents have made. A fear of direct confrontation with Trump and his base leads his opponents to hope that Trump can be defeated without hard fighting. Perhaps circumstances will change or the media will finally pin him. Or maybe some other Trump opponent will pick the perfect kamikaze maneuver and reopen the political field. This is a vain hope. Like Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Hillary Clinton before them, House Democrats will lose any contest with Trump so long as they are unwilling to sustain political damage in the act of inflicting more damage to him. And it, yeah, it, that's right. That's, uh, <laughs> that's spot on. I think a, a reluctance to to risk anything to get and and I think that the reluctance to actually fight and the reluctance to risk anything is is part and parcel of the kind of ethos of keeping everybody in line and doing what the leadership says or else, or else you'll be primaried or else, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that there is some uh, hope in Pelosi's mind that these upstarts do get defeated next time around and they get ousted because they're causing trouble. Uh, This comports well with what, um, with what Elizabeth Spears wrote in the New Republic in a piece called Beyond Pelosi, Why Impeachment Can't Penetrate the Cult of D.C. Savvy. And, you know, she, she writes a lot of, of good stuff in here. But, uh, you know, one particularly good uh, part is where she says that um, – so she writes that, quote, among other things, this reflex of self-insulation comes at the considerable cost of message coherence – that's why at the bottom of all the recent controversy engulfing Pelosi's speakership, there's something of a yawning void of actual leadership, namely the failure to articulate any rationale for an action, uh, if that is, in fact, the best course. And she goes on to talk about how there's no sense in which Pelosi understands, one, that there actually is a strategy that says this is better, or two, even if she calculates that there might be some losses in in the House in the next election, that that doesn't have some kind of conflict with the principle of um, censuring the president and you know basically acting on principle uh, for its own worth and and the kind of and even for centrists who are loath to actually talk about substantive things that the left thinks uh, are deserved like universal health care goes back and back and back to procedural checks that things should be lawful and procedurally fair, right? This is even something that could be fought for on procedural grounds. Like it's important as a kind of democratic republic to use this political tool of impeachment when the president does something like this, right? So it's it's just so obvious that there are all the reasons in the world why the leadership should do something and yet her silence is clearly this form of self-insulation from having to, to do any actual fighting, regardless of the consequences, not because she's especially pragmatic necessarily. Um, and, and I think that that just lines up so well with the, the idea that um, shaking up the Democratic Party is the real fear um, more than anything, I would think. And she's not going anywhere, even if this strategy um, loses. And, and the piece goes on to say that if she takes a stand, if the leadership takes a stand, they specifically might be blamed, right? But if she lets kind of the upstarts do everything and, and they don't really take any action as a collective body, then they can't be punished per se, right? Yeah. Though apparently it is basically an open secret in New York politics that the party is going to try to uh, redraw the district boundaries after 2020 to get rid of AOC's seat. Um, I have no idea if that's true, but Not that's surprising. That's the gossip I've heard. That wouldn't surprise me. 
because she, you know, she's an outsider. She didn't pay her dues. She, she's not, you know, part of the machine. And that's just offensive to these these people. And they will work way harder to get rid of somebody like that on their left than they will, you know, to stop Trump from just like stuffing the White House budget into his own pockets and blatant violation of the Constitution. Um, well, and don't don't forget that Obama himself was not waiting his turn and basically got the ire of everyone that the Clintons kind of told to to kind of fight against him until he defeated or basically was was seen to inevitably defeat Hillary in the primary. Then the establishment started to come around. But at first he was persona non grata, right? Yeah. And he brought Clinton into the administration. And so, you know, yeah. he, he classic outreach to his enemies. Apparently, this is a very marked characteristic of Obama. He wants to win over his his enemies <laughs> much more than he does want to build a sort of like leadership, you know, a base of his own. Oh, God. The, the, yeah, the uniter team of rivals. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think that about sums that up. I don't know. Shall we move on to the real the real hot stuff we got going here? Um, yeah, to- yeah, yeah, let's do it. it and, and I think it's, it's good to, to bounce off of, uh, a, a clear case where a few lone voices are speaking to the kind of actual suffering of migrants, people across the country, the leftist first year Congress people are doing great things, but the democratic leadership is doing jack shit. And, there's a reason that Trump was able to defeat the Hillary Clintons of the world and the kind of, you know, uh, gutless democratic leadership. The right wing is learning from this and it seems like there are going to be more Trump-like right wingers coming, coming around and trying to, to take advantage of, of that void, right? Yeah. And so, so we're talking Josh Hawley. And we have actually maybe some breaking news on the podcast for the first time. As far as I can tell, nobody has gotten into this uh, thing we'll discuss here in just a minute. Um, but first, to just sort of go through this this speech we're talking about. Um, so this is Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. He defeated Claire McCaskill in 2018 to become a senator. And he gave the keynote address at the National Conservatism Conference. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I would say, sort of putting an intellectual veneer on, on sort of Trumpy instincts. Um, and yes, definitely. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, the, the, the middle middle America has been left behind, um, you know, been abandoned by Wall Street and and a uh, cosmopolitan elite. That's the term. The cosmopolitan elite keeps coming up again and again. Yeah. Right. But but in addition to you might have you might think that kind of cosmopolitan dog whistle. Stephen Miller has done that before. I'm sure Bannon has done it. Uh, but like you said, it's under the veneer of, and especially if you, if you listen to Left Anchor, things that we talk about. He talks about kind of uh, the ancient republics and, and, and kind of drops some, uh, you know, history of political philosophy, political theory here and there, um, but to a very clear purpose, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. And, and he go, you know, he talks about jobs. He talks about, you know, kind of inequality broadly speaking and um you know he said he says some things that are like in the ballpark of true at least uh all of this uh the economic globalizing the social liberationism has worked quite well for some for the cosmopolitan class whom it has not served are the people whose labor sustains this nation whom it has not helped are the citizens whose sacrifices protect our republic whom it has not benefited is the great american middle because in this bargain, foreign competitors get to make the goods, and we just buy them. And then they buy up American companies with the profits. And yes, in this bargain, there are a lot of jobs. Jobs on Wall Street or in Hollywood or in Silicon Valley. Because the truth is, the cosmopolitan economy has made the cosmopolitan class an aristocracy. 
At the same time, it has encouraged multinational corporations to move jobs and assets overseas to chase the cheapest wages and pay the lowest taxes, etc., etc., etc. You know, this, this, there's some echoes of, of Bernie here, I would say, in the, you know, the critique of kind of transnational capitalists who, uh, you know, really have hollowed out the middle class over the last, you know, generation since the neoliberal turn of the 1970s. But there's a twist. This cosmopolitan thing. Uh, it's not just economic, is it? I have a feeling, Ryan, I have a feeling it's not just going to be economic. No, no. And and he's talking about cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism. This class lives in the United States where they identify as citizens of the world. They run businesses or oversee universities here, but their primary loyalty is to the global community. And they subscribe to a set of values held by similar elites in other places. Things like the importance of global integration and the danger of national loyalties, the priority of social change over tradition, career over community, and the achieve and achievement in merit and progress. Call it the cosmopolitan consensus. So ca- calling this so, because <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here, I guess to start with. Yeah, let's let's just take it take it slowly, one thing at a time. We can just go bit by bit through this. The big difference here uh, uh, between something somebody like Bernie. Is he would say he would say the millionaires and billionaires, or maybe the capitalist class, or something like this. He would not say cosmopolitan because rootless cosmopolitanism. You know, this is a trope. This is a big time trope he's talking about here. And that's a, that's a big anti-Semitic trope. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he goes on. You know, he goes on to uh, quote, and and we'll get into this a little bit more later. But he quotes three academics who are apparently totally against patriotism. Uh, MIT professor emeritus Leo Marx, NYU's Richard Sennett, uh, the the late Lloyd Rudolph of the University of Chicago, and Martha Nussbaum. And all these academics, apparently, put a pin in that, are against patriotism. Three of them are Jewish, right? So Nussbaum is a convert, but still. Right. Yeah, Randolph, Rudolph, rather, is the only one who's not Jewish. And um, you're talking about cosmopolitan elites who control the world economy and have no loyalty to communities or or rooted national identities. And three of the people you're quoting are Jews. Like... Three, three out of four. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, like... Ilhan Omar got a world of shit for something that wasn't one hundredth as anti-Semitic as this. This is fucking straight out of Mein Kampf, and I and that's really not an exaggeration. And the way to see this is to look at some fucking nutty anti-Semites, as you found. There's this lady named Carolyn Yeager who writes Holocaust denial books, and there's a uh, one of them's called. The artist within the warlord and Adolf Hitler you've never known. And uh, you can buy this book on Amazon. We will not be linking to it. Um, it was a uh, scary – because at first I just was t- trying to find the transcript of the speech. And this came up as one of the first results. And it seemed like – I mean you, you tell me, Ryan, like a fairly good-looking website for, for someone who's not affiliated with an organization that's just making their own website. So I was like, oh, this seems like a respectable – I wonder if she's a scholar. What? It, and then I started to read it. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is I, I I mean you know one one imagines these kind of you know Nazi sympathizing um, nut cases are out there, but just to see it with like the nice little kind of professional picture of herself and, and the and the nice WordPress, it, it's it was disturbing. Yeah, she says, "quote I'm not the only one who is struck by the similarities in Holly's words and phrases to the speeches and writings of Adolf Hitler and other national socialists from the 1920s and 30s. And then she goes on to list a bunch of them. Uh, and she says, quote, This is all so powerful and good that we may have to overlook some of our dislike of Christian Zionism and the Zionist project in Israel, etc., etc. And uh, the Daily Stormer, also a big fan of this speech. Uh, Here's the uh, in a post here. um, Senator Josh Hawley calls out cosmopolitan elites and globalist shills by Roy Batty. Josh Hawley is speaking a lot of sense. That's the first uh, 
first sentence. So, and Ryan, can you remind me? Remind me of the boy. It's sad because there's so many shootings, but the uh, the Tree of Life, I believe, shooter. Uh, what what was what was the conspiracy theory that led to that shooting of the synagogue? Do you remember? The conspiracy theory was that um, Jews were a, a, a Jewish like sort of refugee resettlement uh, effort, which which um, global Jews, global global cosmopolitan Jews like George Soros were behind it, right? They they well, so there is a refugee resettlement effort, um, but it's not you know. I mean, it comes directly out of the Holocaust, um, and it's sort of, right. you know, pay it for never again, that sort of thing. The conspiracy theory is that rich Jews are conspiring to bring refugees into the United States, that instead of just— Basically— the, Yeah, right. the misread right. is that is not that they're—like, what they're doing is helping people who have been admitted as refugees, and the conspiracy theory is that they're somehow— uh, bringing in lots of people or paying them. I hear that a lot, that they're giving a lot, they're funding these refugee caravans that are coming up from Guatemala and Honduras, um, which is complete fucking lunacy. Whites and the white race apparently is being defeated by rich Jews who are trying to get any non-white people they can to come into the country to uh, collectively defeat the whites. Yes. And this is so this is a great replacement conspiracy. This is what the Charlottesville Nazis were referring to when they said Jews will not replace us. Um, the, the, you know, white genocide orchestrated by a sinister global cabal. So at any rate, you know. And this is the, the, this speech was given at the same event where Penn Law Professor uh, Amy Wax, is that her name? Amy Wax? I think so, yeah gave even more explicitly racist, xenophobic statements, uh, literally talking about how what we need is more white immigrants and, and less non-white immigrants. So this is the same event, right? It's, 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 this is kind of, uh, you know, not taking place in a vacuum, this speech, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, 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 the hymnal, you know, that he's reading from here is a really dark one. Um but I would say the other thing to note about this, you know, and a lot of people have pointed this out, is that, you know, Holly has no agenda to actually fix any of the problems he's talking about, with one exception. Um, you know, he's he's a big against Facebook and the platform monopolies. Um, he's, as far as I can tell, actually pissed some people off in high places, like the Koch brothers have been after him about this. Um, you know, he wants stronger regulations on Facebook and Amazon and so on. Um, and that, you know, could potentially be a positive, you know, suggestion in that narrow way. But other than that, you know, he's not talking about unions, you know, before he was elected. No, it it hasn't. He, he was a right to work supporter. Yes. Right to work. He signed his state up when he was attorney general of Missouri with a lawsuit that would destroy the Affordable Care Act. Um, he doesn't support the minimum wage. You know, there's no comprehensive trade policy. He's sort of spoken favorably about Trump stuff, but there's no theory there. And Trump's trades th- uh, uh, trade war hasn't worked out because he, he has no sort of comprehensive approach. It's just <laughs> flailing around. Well, that's and, and that's why... The the entire Trumpian uh, economic faux populist message is a red herring, and for some, like we've talked about, there's probably a number of of Trump voters who were turned off or maybe have been harmed by his policies and maybe aren't going to vote for him or whatnot. But there are those that have been interviewed that their personal farms have been really affected negatively and they still love Trump because it's just like a stalking horse in some sense, right, for the real identity that is being kind of mirrored and promoted, which is the cultural, quote unquote, cultural, uh, nationalistic one. And so, so here's where the question of how much of this is straight up xenophobic, anti-Semitic, racist, and stoking those um, kind of affects in the people as a way to gain power, and, and how much is it um, kind of a hybrid with some 
true populist approach because some people have, like you said, said this is, sounds a lot like Bernie Sanders. And I, and I think we really need to, to, to make it clear when just like, I think a lot of people say Trump is distinct from Bernie Sanders, even though some idiots don't see that. I think Trump is so uniquely monstrous for most people that they think he is his own thing. But this is my, my fear is that a Trumpian kind of uh, amalgamation of faux populism and uh, white Christian, especially nationalist um, kind of xenophobia and racism can build this consensus that Hawley says he wants to build uh, that has, you know, a whole lot going on that is, that is much of the same that Trump is stoking. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the big danger here is that Holly, you know, he's 39, really good looking guy. Um, he's got giant teeth, uh, very important in a politician, great hair. Uh, you know, the, the, what, what gave the, the Nazis their credibility when they, you know, were consolidating power was they fixed the great depression. Right. And they had a sort of plan to do that. It wasn't like super comprehensive, but they did do it. Um, you know, and and Republicans have sort of stumbled into a a method of sort of giving the economy a kind of sugar high, I guess. You know, it's like as soon as Trump took power, they just big old tax cut, big old spending increases, just basically Keynesianism. And, you know, it got the it you know, it improved things a bit more than, you know, got them at least continuing down the trajectory they had done. Um, and uh that, you know, no inflation to speak of. The the economy was weak because, uh, you know, in lack of austerity and, la and that Republicans had pushed, you know, and then as soon as they got into power, they turned on a dime and, you know, big spending. But none of the really deep structural things have been addressed at all. Uh, you know, still no unions. Uh, Wall Street is still bigger than ever. Monopolist corporations. The trade thing has been a total flop with Trump. You know, he's just having to bail out farmers who are being wrecked by climate change and, you know, the lack of soybean markets in China and whatnot. But if they do happen to stumble onto something, if you get someone, I don't know how smart Holly is, but he's certainly a hell of a lot smarter than Trump. Um, a guy who sees his balance of interest lies in, you know, maybe buying off some of the capitalist class uh, and then crushing some of the other ones who are getting in the way of really get handing out lots of goodies to the workers. Um, you know, maybe maybe say Medicare for all, you know, that that would be not inconceivable for them to get behind uh, and just say, sorry, insurance industry, we're sacrificing you to the to the God of winning the next election. I think that could be a very, very dangerous um, uh, combination because it could win, you know. Um, I, and not only dangerous because it could win, but because of what it actually represents. And so I, I think maybe mm -hmm. we should shift to, to doing two things at once. Once One is showing the veneer of something reasonable, but actually what, what underneath it is actually pernicious and, and malicious and hateful because that's where the, the, the danger actually is. Because on its face, some of these statements are so anodyne as to remind us of the Alistair McIntyre piece uh, is patriotism of virtue, because he talks about some reasonable things like, sure, it, it's important to remember that uh, your polis, your community, your nation state, if you will, is uh, the place to which you owe a primary duty, the, the place... Uh, that you are responsible for making better, um, so on and so forth. Like that, there, there's a sense in which, and this is the piece that we talked about in in that last episode, uh, Omar and patriotism. There is a tension between kind of a Kantian universalist um, ethic, which is in some way apolitical or transcends politics, and was kind of the foundation for you know, the United Nations and the, the notion of universal human rights, uh, along with, right, the, the French Revolution, of course, uh, there, there is something in tension when you abstract the, to the universal level, but then politics actually is always local, right, in some sense. And there are uh, these contested resources, scarce resources and, and contests between people in particular places. And in some sense, you do need to care and attend to um 
your own country in a way that you don't attend to a different country, right? Or someone on the other end of the, of the globe. Uh, now, what's funny is the examples he shows for the wrong position, the cosmopolitan position, these Jewish uh, professor examples are for the most part a very nuanced approach just like McIntyre and obviously, I mean, comport with any number of reasonable ways to think about that tension. But Hawley totally mischaracterizes them and makes straw men of those arguments in order to do his own thing. So, yeah. so maybe let's start with, with some of these statements. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could start with, um, well, let's let's go through what the quotes that, that Hawley gives. He says, MIT professor emeritus Leo Marx has said that the, quote, planet would be a better place to live if more people gave their primary allegiance to the community of human beings in the entire world. NYU's Richard Sennett has denounced what he called, quote, the evil of shared national identity. The late uh, Lloyd Rudolph of the University of Chicago said patriotism, quote, excludes difference and speaks the language of hate and violence. And then there's the <clears throat> there's Martha Nussbaum, who wrote that it is wrong and morally dangerous to teach students that they are, quote, above all citizens of the United States, end quote. Instead, they should be educated for, quote, world citizenship. So we could start with uh, Richard Sennett, because this is the only one that's accurate at all. This comes from, and it took me a while to look this up, a New York Times article from 1994 called The Identity Myth. And indeed, Senate says, um, quote, the challenge and promise of American society lie in finding ways of acting together without invoking the evil of a shared national identity. Basically, is just down on patriotism, like writ large. Um, but the rest of them are varying levels of of totally mischaracterized. And I, and I would say this is almost a deliberate lie, the way that he or whoever researched this for him uh, came. Well, especially because his, his next sentence after he quotes those uh, professors is, you get the idea the cosmopolitan elite look down on the common affections that once bound this nation together, things like place and national feeling and religious faith. That sentence is an egregious lie, right? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe we could start with Nussbaum because... She's down on patriotism, but not the not the extent that that uh, that Holly makes out. So, her, the actual quote this comes from a Boston Review article from 1994. She's she's arguing with Richard Rorty, who says that leftist academics are not uh, patriotic enough. She's she says. Uh, <clears throat> You know, people like him may argue for, quote, may argue, for example, that although nations should in general base education and political deliberation on shared national values, a commitment to basic human rights should be part of any national education system. And that this commitment will will, in a sense, serve to hold many nations together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But is it sufficient as students here grow up? Is it sufficient for them to learn that they are above all citizens of the United States, but that they ought to respect the basic human rights of citizens of India, Bolivia, Nigeria and Norway? Or should they, as I think, in addition to giving special attention to the history and current situation of their own nation, learn a good deal more than is frequently the case about the rest of the world in which they live, about India and Bolivia and Nigeria and Norway and their histories, problems and comparative successes. So even here when she's saying that, um, it, you know, it's, it's one should be a sort of global citizen first and foremost, she's not saying that being also a citizen of the United States and, and uh, is bad and morally wrong and dangerous. What she's saying is that it, even she says that, well, yes, of course, everyone must have a special focus on their own circumstances and it's just a total mischaracterization of her of her uh, viewpoint well in fact she says quote once again that does not mean that one may not permissibly give one's own sphere a special degree of concern 
politics like childcare will be poorly done if each thinks herself equally responsible for all rather than giving the immediate surrounding special attention and care and she goes on because she is is not just a straight kantian she 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 draws on aristotle a lot and of course the medieval christian philosophers who drew on aristotle and then catholics who drew on aquinas and you know basically came up with an idea called subsidiarity, know this very, very well. This is a very Christian or Catholic uh, principle, which is she talks about concentric circles. So you attend uh, most especially to, to your immediate, so yourself, then your, your spouse or your family, then your community, local community. And, and the, it's kind of like Russian dolls or concentric circles that keep going. You're, you, ex, you keep extending your uh, care, and for, for a Christian, of course, to be ultimately is universal. Um, so, so she is embracing, actually. And in fact, drawing on Aristotle, she thinks that even within, say, the polis or the polity, Aristotle says, uh, let's say that you're married and your spouse is going on trial, it is not, you are not in service of the common good supposed to just betray your spouse. And in fact, you are supposed to look out for the well-being of your spouse um, over and above the, the polis, because that is a, is a more primary, you know, fundamental unit that, that you have to protect. And that actually is in full accordance with serving the common good. And, and so she, she's much more nuanced and much more acknowledging of the different tensions that we explored with the McIntyre piece. Uh, and then there were these great responses that we should link to, too, from other uh, philosophers and theorists who are dealing with with the complexities of the particular and the universal of, of self and other and, and different ways of bounding communities and, and thinking of these things. Um, but Hawley just reduces all of that, or whoever did the reading or didn't do the reading for him, uh, reduces that to, in fact, quite the opposite of what she's specifically supporting, which is to say that you reject care and, and you denigrate care for your your country and for the particular in service of some global or universal thing right yeah um very it's 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 galling to be honest and and um yeah the, this response the 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 other two quotes come from a response to this article i believe it, it was a sort of a forum responses to nussbaum right. also in boston review and there's a bunch of bunch of different uh, folks in here um, and the, the, uh, Leo Marx, what he said, he, he sets up the way he sets up his, his response here is that he says basically that Nussbaum's, but basically that her, her argument sounds good, but that it, it, it neglects a lot. It, it, it maybe doesn't work out in the real world. He says, quote, it is heartening in an era of erupting nationalisms to recall the eminently rational Greek concept of the world citizen. Uh, blah, 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 quote, can there be any doubt that our planet would be a better place to live if more people gave primary allegiances to the community of human beings in the entire world? And there he's quoting Nussbaum's. The rest of his entire response is, 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 is raising problems with, with the argument. Quote, and yet having said this, I must admit that the beautiful, clear-cut simplicity of Professor Nussbaum's thought is disconcerting. She achieves that she achieves that crystalline clarity by situating her argument as moral philosophers since Plato have done in an abstract realm of largely affectless rationality. She removes key ideas cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism, and nationalism from their actual history, detaching them from the kinds of group interests, the tendrils of power and politics that cling to all ideas held by living people. So, you know, going through this. Um, it's it's a critique is what it is. It is absolutely I mean close to the opposite of the way that <laughs> that that Hawley characterizes right. it as if he's contemptuous yeah. of people and their their um the, their shared, you know, group identities and their national affiliations and so on. He's saying that no, that is a fact you have to reckon with and it and it really matters and you can't just dismiss it because it isn't perfect in the realm of abstract rationality. So so the this nuanced basically colloquia right this forum on a interesting question by the way she's responding to rorty richard rorty famous right lefty philosopher who people like jordan peterson think uh, inaugurated uh postmodernism and and kind yeah. of brought down our our culture in a different way 
it, it, so 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 already this mo- this faux monolithic uh a- academic elite is the, the exact forum he uses to represent a monolithic right cultural academic elite is itself a pluralistic contentious nuanced debate right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, which is amazing to me right but but the, but the jews are all one and they seem to represent right uh the academics generally who are somehow and this is the weird part right so so there's this faux monolithic uh thing that somehow has 3 out of 4 professors that are jewish that hates place right that have no no appreciation for the common affections uh quote common affections that that once bound this nation together place national feeling religious faith interesting um and yet that somehow is merged in a monolithic way to make the cosmopolitan elite one thing with yeah. the gl- global financial elites yeah this is the weird part right and this is where there doesn't seem to be a legitimate explanation for right like like it i just i don't you know what what is this combination of cultural elites and financial elites that isn't this dog whistle right because you'll notice that he mentions um what bound us together place national feeling and religious faith he only mentions christianity in particular in terms of religion right and he doesn't mention really the Declaration of Independence. He doesn't like, what is the thing that binds our country together that he's speaking of? And to whom is he speaking? Who's the we? Who's the our? It's unclear. It's not stated. The only particulars that are stated are Christianity, right? And, and Judaism in the context of these speakers and in the context of calling Jesus a Jewish rabbi, right? Which yeah. is maybe what our Nazi sympathizer person we talked about. That was the thing where she's like, oh, I was a little weird. Maybe that's a Christian <laughs> Zionist thing. I don't know. God. Oh. So, so, so like, you know, when you say this is like Bernie Sanders, okay, so, so it's populist insofar as it's talking about the problems of capitalism, but it doesn't use the word capitalism. Okay? Yeah. It doesn't use, doesn't use class language, working class, right? 1%. It doesn't use, uh, doesn't say unions. It doesn't say, uh, corporations, right? Does it say corporations? I'm not sure if it does, but what it talks about is this, cause, why would you have to use this term cosmopolitan consensus, cosmopolitan elite, when you could just say bankers, Wall Street, capitalists, billionaires, right? Like it's doing something new. It's it's taking the economics and smuggling in something that's more important, actually. That yeah. these not that these Nazis are rightly, I think, identifying as, oh, I know this is about cool. We can get behind this. And Stephen Miller does the same thing, even though he's he's Jewish himself, right? Um, that there's been plenty of history of, of people who, uh, um, you know, are, are kind of betraying their own identity in service of, um, the very oppression that would seek to exclude it from, from the polity. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, this, this is the, before we get to the last guy here, this is definitely the most ridiculous part of the, the entire argument as if these international, you know, uh, capitalist, uh, executives and investors give one single solitary shit what a bunch of ex- obscure academics are writing about patriotism. Like, well, are you kidding me? Like, like the. If anything, they're trying to shut down universities and make them simply shops that produce workers. They're trying to shut down the humanities. They're trying to like, if anything, these 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 elites in in the 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 people that own the means of production, the people that have the money, the bankers. If anything, they're neoliberalizing higher education and, and eradicating yeah. these kind of forums. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's shades of the cultural Marxist conspiracy theory here. That, but you know, like like yep. Jack Welch or or. Um, Who's a guy who killed <laughs> TWA? Uh, Carl Icahn. Like they, like yeah. uh-huh. are, they're they're reading postmodernist philosophy, and they're and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah, patriotism is bullshit. Let's let's get on this. They, they don't they they don't even know about any of this crap. It's money and taking these con- companies apart and increasing their own profits. They don't give a fuck about any of this stuff. Um, let, let, let me play devil's advocate and try to find some way, like, let's say that Howley is just an 
idiot and has no idea what capitalism really is or how it functions. And he's simply confusing the true capitalist, like the actual bourgeoisie, for the kind of uh, petty bourgeois uh, like professional class. Like what, what if he doesn't see or he conflates the actual point one percent, right? Or the, even the one percent with like the 10 percent or, or with like certain, um, I don't know, liberal New York Times readers or something. I think like, what possible way could you think that the reason that the kind of economic situation we have is as it is, is because of, uh, well, so here, here's the best devil's advocate. Uh, the neoliberals like Obama, Hillary Clinton, and others have totally fucked over, right? All kinds of workers in this country. And they themselves have a certain cultural, uh, you know, latte sipping liberal identity that can be attacked and has been attacked by the right. So, is there a sense in which he could be maybe cynically because he actually wants to be in the pocket or not actually ruffle the, uh, the power centers um, using that caricature of kind of neoliberalism? Again, he doesn't use the word neoliberalism, though, either. Right. No. Um, can he can somehow be confused? So, so I'm just trying to, to find a way. Could he be confusing the petty bourgeois uh, liberals and their cultural identity for the actual people and entities and businesses that are to blame for the structure of capitalism and its consequences. Um, I don't know that I would put any there that much in intentionality into it. I mean, I feel like this is just a guy who's been fed on right wing media his whole life. And, you know, people yeah. like Tucker Carlson are um, there. You know, he's been developing a sort of critique of of you know, capitalism, sort of, you know, the, the, the hideous inequalities of capitalism. Um, and that maybe sort of goes back to older traditions, you know, uh, sort of pre, like, like sort of monarchical capitalists who weren't so attached to libertarian economics. Um, mm -hmm. But my guess is that he's just sort of seeing the some economic problems and just sort of awkwardly pasting in some of classic right-wing cultural grievance, you know, the pointy-headed, latte-sipping liberals, the college professors, and just trying to grind those two things together as if, you know, the 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 professors of sociology or whatever are, are somehow responsible for the investment decisions of large corporations. <laughs> but let me, let me no, get... No, this sounds much... Yeah, go ahead. Do the last... Yeah, last the, part, let yeah. me get real quick to the, this, because this is the most egregious one. Um... Lloyd Randolph, uh, in his response, he is probably the most skeptical about Nussbaum's thing. And uh, he says, quote, are the differences between universalism and particularism, between being a citizen of the world and being an American citizen, as great as Nussbaum claims? Do Jefferson's American language of universal equality and rights and a decent respect for the opinions of mankind— or Lincoln's concern to reconcile order and justice, or Martin Luther King's effort, inspired in part by Gandhi, to forge a nonviolent model of inclusive citizenship really hinder Americans from becoming citizens of the world? Skipping a bit, the, quote, the world is indebted to Eleanor Roosevelt, whose conscience was rooted in her American experience for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and in considerable measure to U.S. law and policy for the increasing global presence of human rights. How and why did this happen? It goes on and on and on. Um, and so he actually is seeing very little tension, in fact, between being a patriot and having universal uh, care and being a citizen of the world. You can you can have dual citizenship in that way without a problem. Yeah, right? he's sort of on the side of, of Rorty. He says, quote, this, you know, going, uh, uh, quote, Martha Nussbaum seems to neglect these differences. She detests patriotism and admires cosmopolitanism. Uh, uh, patriotism for her is aggressive, exclusive, intolerant nationalism. It can lead to the kind of hatred and violence towards the other practiced by Hitler in his time and Slobodan Milosevic in ours. This is not how I read the Rorty and Hackney effort to recover a common American language, a language that can transcend and inform recognition of and respect for difference in America. Martin Luther King 
articulated and affirmed American patriotism and his inclusivist, nonviolent pursuit of civil rights for African Americans. Um, skipping a bit, instead of this is the the key the the key sh- point right here. Instead of going after Rorty and Hackney, who share many of her concerns, Martha Nussbaum might do better to go after the scoundrel patriots of our time, the Oliver Norths, Pat Buchanan's, Pat Robertson's, and Jerry Falwell's. Their patriotism excludes difference and speaks the language of hate and violence. So this this quote from Holly is a straight-up lie. Like, it is it is saying basically the opposite of... he's He's talking about particular people... Um, whose patriotism is is you know end up with crime and hatred and 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 intolerance and bigotry, but he says there is a type of patriotism that's that can be good, right? And interesting <clears throat> that it's a lie that involves Pat Buchanan because this, as I think a number of people have pointed out, this speech is seems to me much in the tra- tradition of Pat Buchanan and that kind Absolutely. of xenophobic kind right isolationistic talk. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's unspoken, uh, except for, so, so here's the other thing, who the we are and who the them are is very, uh, opaque, except for the fact that we has to do with place, national feeling, and what has always, quote, what, quote, has always bound us together. Who's the us there? Right. And, and and the the us seems to be because he talks about Christianity specifically later on Christian people, because there's no other. I mean, usually in a speech that talks about us, you talk about kind of diversity and what makes the United States distinct, in fact, is that is it is not a nation that's built on uh, homogeneous ethnicity or genealogy. Right. Like it's, in fact, uh, a, a nation state that has I mean. Besides stealing land and, and committing genocide against the indigenous peoples and bringing uh, enslaved people over, obviously, it is indeed that quote unquote nation of immigrants built on the Declaration of Independence, which at least ideally is about founding a imagined community based on certain ideals of equality and liberty, not, in fact, on the particularities of place actually not in fact about defining us and 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 other from us uh in any way based on a particular religion um or even even a particular place because as as we saw with Greg Grandin what the US was even territorially has shifted over time and that's had ideological um kind of significance as well so so it's weird uh if it's not an anti-semitic uh, xenophobic Pat Buchanan type speech, it would be weird for him not to spell out a little more who the us is and what those things that have bound us together are, um, and to just drop Christianity and then drop the enemy as these academics, these, these globalists who, uh, you know, happen to be three quarters Jewish. Uh, you know, the <laughs> interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe he drops the the one, uh, non Jewish professor in there to guard against that. I don't know, but, um, yeah, so, well, so the, he, the fear isn't just that this one asshole could be successful, is that he's smarter than Trump and he's tapping into, I think, uh, a Bannon-Miller uh, alt-right type of ideology that could really grow, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it remains to be seen, like, what, uh, wh- whether or not they'll be able to develop this kind of thing into a real program. You know, because a Republican... They have no intellectual apparatus to do anything like this. Um, you know, the, all the think tanks and, st- and such are controlled by the big money. Um, and so far during the, the uh, you know, the Trump administration, it has been, with rare exceptions, just total plutocracy. Huge tax cut for the rich is really the only thing they did, aside from, you know, punishing immigrants and, and Muslims in other countries. So... Um, you know, I, I would be uh, a little bit skeptical of their ability to do that. But on the other hand, you know, definitely not a time to sit on our heels, you know, and, and do the Pelosi no. thing of, of just trying to split the difference and and hope that Republican policy continues to be as unpopular as it has been for the last 30 years forever. You know, because if they start claiming that ground and just and it becomes clear that if you want real goodies for the working class and the, and the middle class, vote Republican, and we are in the shitter. 
you know, that, that could be real bad, you know, for everyone who is not included in their, you know, their, their sort of tribal affiliations, uh, as it were, their sort of Heronvolk democracy and, um, Right. Yeah. Yikes. Well, and you see, you see certain certain uh, pundits or wonks being seduced by by this speech, and, and you know, I mean, whether it's Matt Stoller or whoever else that might, in theory, uh, be anti-capitalist. Uh, although Stoller, strangely, he embraces the term capitalism, so maybe he's a weird example. But people whose a- uh, policies might, right, like might otherwise be something that we would call leftist. Uh, see, some of them seem seduced by, by this, uh, talk and they like it just because, like you said, it in some sense seems to challenge plutocracy and the oligarchy. But, um, you know, be careful. It's important to distinguish, um, that, that, that danger that could come from the right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's not good, folks. So we'll be, ca- but, <clears throat> I think it's telling that, you know, um, that that in order to construct his narrative of the, you know, the 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 professors who hate America and, and patriotism and apple pie, he just has to butcher these quotes beyond recognition. Um, that's, From 19, you know, he had to go to 1994. He went to 1994. And lie, like he had to, he had to lie about quotes from 1994 to find evidence of the cosmopolitan consensus. Yeah. Yeah. And they weren't in consensus even. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. The, the, the consensus, which comes from this round table of people who are just sniping at each other in every direction. I mean, what a fucking joke. And that gives you, you know, that's the intellectual level these people are operating on. But, you know, right. the, the Nazis were a bunch of weirdo idiots, too, and they did manage to fix their economy up. So that's right. You know, that's right. Let's, Just because let's they're not morons sit on doesn't mean they can't take power. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And yep. if you're interested in an actually edifying uh, way of, of wrestling with the particular and the universal and, and kind of the Kantian uh, universal liberalism versus uh, more parochial, parochial or, um, you know, small r Republican understandings of politics and, and the ways that, uh, the, the bonds of affection for a particular place and, uh, have value indeed, um, and are necessary. Read the Alistair McIntyre lecture. What is, um, is patriotism a virtue, which we discussed, uh, in, in episode 58. And, uh, we can maybe link to that again as kind of a, a cleanser, uh, yeah. after this nonsense, right? Definitely. That's a good place to leave it, I think. Um, thanks for listening, yep. as usual. And, uh, yeah, we'll thanks, we be back on our normal schedule now. Yeah, thanks for listening. And, uh, as always, if, if you don't mind rating us on iTunes or, or promoting us, we'd really appreciate it. Try to, to get this podcast out to as many people that would like it as possible. So thanks again. Take care. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.